Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Chatham Community Church. My name is Jaime. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to see you all here this morning, and I'm glad to welcome those of you who are with us online. Uh, so glad you're joining us this morning, and if you have the ability to say hi on the chat, please do so. We're glad to have you with us. We are one church in many locations. You may not know that if this is your first time with us or your first time in a long time. And so you know we have an online community that joins us on Sunday mornings, but we also have a community that is gathered to worship at Pittsburgh, down uh, south of the Hall River. They meet at Chatham Mills, and uh, I usually spend most of my Sundays there, and Alex Kirk, who's our lead pastor, spends most of his Sundays here, but every once in a while, we like to switch it up, gives Alex a chance to see the folks south of the Hall, gives me a chance to be up here with y'all, so I'm glad to be with you here this morning. Uh, but if this happens to be your first time, or if you've never met Alex, I wanna encourage you to come back have a chance to meet Alex and listen to his teaching. Uh, it, it's a great experience. And if I haven't ever met you, at the end of the service, I'm going to be just outside the exit doors. Come say hi. I'd love to uh, hear your name, hear how you ended up here at Chatham Community Church and here in Chatham County and what your experience was like this morning. What are we going to eat tonight? I can't think of a more mundane question that has led to as many disagreements and discussions as that one. Right? And we know that that's the kind of question that can spur a disagreement or an argument. So many of us have tactics and strategies to manage around that question. Some people meal plan. And whether it's months at a time or weeks at a time, we have schedules of what we're going to eat, what night, so we make sure that we've shopped for the things that we need and we make sure that we've budgeted the time to cook and we make sure that we've allowed time for all the weeping, gnashing of teeth and grumbling that's going to come when someone says, macaroni again? Yes, macaroni again. Some of us have designated days for particular types of meals and so we have Taco Tuesday and we have soup Sunday, and we have pizza Friday, and pizza, and no day starts with a P, but it doesn't matter because we need a day for pizza. So it's pizza Friday. Some people uh, pre-assign certain days to certain members of the family to be in charge of the meal. I knew a family who took advantage of the fact that they have five kids, and for a season, each kid had a designated day of the week, of the weekdays, that they were in charge of dinner. So they were in charge of picking what was going to be cooked. They were in charge of making sure the groceries were bought. They were in charge of preparing it, and all the rest of the family was in charge of saying thank you and enjoying it. Someone from our community was recently uh, talking to me about a book that, that they read in the recent past. It's called Six Seasons, A New Way with Vegetables. The book presents recipes for every season based on what's likely being harvested at that time, and it's based on how to get peak flavor, depending on where you are in the grow season. Uh, and the person who was sharing about the book happens to have a vegetable garden and was talking about how now what they do is that they keep a few staples on hand in their pantry and in their fridge. They'll pull up a recipe, they'll go outside, they'll grab whatever is ready in the garden, and what's for dinner is either mostly or completely answered, even before thinking has started. I appreciate that. I appreciate that by having the book be organized by seasons, it's structured in such a way as to help you get the most out of what you're growing or what you happen to have the opportunity to buy. But vegetables aren't the only things that are seasonal, aren't they? Our lives feel seasonal, too. In fact, we may think of our lives as going through certain seasons. Some of us are in seasons of rush. 
Some of us are in seasons of cramming. Some of us are in seasons of senioritis or something like it where we're just waiting for the school year to be done. I'm talking to you, teachers. I'm not talking to the students. But if that's the case, if our lives can be seasonal too, wouldn't it be great if there were something like that cookbook? Something that could help us get the most and the best out of life no matter what season we're in. We've spent the last month and a half mostly looking at portions of scripture that are known as wisdom literature. What we've seen week after week is how the timeless, timeless truths contained in the ancient text chart a path, chart a path in which we follow Jesus, connect with God, and we can recognize, desire, and pursue that which is ideal, that which is good, that which leads to the best kind of life. And that works in every season of life. It works in the calm seasons. It works in the sad seasons. It works in the exciting seasons. It works in the difficult seasons. And it even works in seasons that are filled with chaos. Wisdom enables and equips us to engage and navigate every season of life. Wisdom enables and equips us to engage and navigate every season of life. Not just to get by, not just to drag ourselves across the finish line into the next season, but to thrive. We can navigate every season in such a way as to, as to thrive in life-giving ways and contributing to life in every area that we are. Let's see that one more time today. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you or don't have access to one, it's going to be uh, on the screen in just a second. But we're going to read in Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1. Here we go. There is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to uproot. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love. A time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This, this is the gift from God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Now, many people have a number of different ways of how to approach or think about Ecclesiastes. In fact, some people avoid Ecclesiastes because it feels like a very pessimistic book. Another way of looking at Ecclesiastes, and perhaps the one I want to invite us to consider today, is that it, is, uh, it comes from the perspective of a man who at an older age is looking back on his life. And as he looks back on his life, he's reflecting 
and taking stock of what was meaningful and what wasn't meaningful. And actually trying to drill down to what is actually truly good. And he's collecting his thoughts, his reflections, his perspective, so that others, those in his time and those in the ages to come, including us, might benefit from it. We read today from the third chapter, and it's a chapter that is often quoted. In fact, it's so quotable that it became the basis of a classic rock song, Turn, Turn, Turn. And it starts with the phrase, there is a season for everything, and a se there is a time for everything, and a season for every activity under the heavens. And right after that, it goes through listing a series of contrasting experiences, the kinds of things people experience in life. And some are easy to accept as part of a normal life, a time to plant and a time to uproot. My friend the gardener would certainly understand that one. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to mourn and a time to dance. We may not be too fond of times of mourning, but we know that they come and we can accept them. Some of us may even need to embrace that there are times when it's okay to dance. We even don't have a hard time accepting the reality that there is a time to be born and equally a time to die. But there are some in that passage that you wonder what to do with. Is there really a time to kill? Is there really a time to hate? What do we do with those? Well, he's not saying that there is a right time to kill. He's not saying that there is a good time to hate. This passage, these, these observations are not prescriptive. He's not claiming that he's experienced each one of these things or done all of them. Rather, what he's doing is looking back at the full arc of his life up to that point. And he's observing what he's seen. He's observing what he's lived. He's observing what he's noticed going on in the world around him. He's being descriptive rather than prescriptive. And in that, he's capturing a wide range of human experience. And if you capture or seek to capture a wide range of human experience, you have to acknowledge that not every human experience is a desirable one. Not every human experience is good. But it's essential to include those aspects that are difficult, aspects that are hard to accept, even those aspects that would feel unwelcome. The Princess Bride has become one of the most quotable films. And there is a quote in that film where uh, the hero, Wesley, still as the dread pirate Roberts, turns to the princess and says, Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Now, I don't agree with all of that quote, but I think there's some truth to the latter part of it. To the idea that anyone who says differently is selling something. Because to ignore or deny the difficult parts of life, the hard parts of life, the unwelcome parts of real and realities of life is disingenuous, is unhelpful. Because we all witness, experience, and or participate in seasons that are helpful, but also in seasons that are harmful. We all either experience them or participate in them at one point or another. It's possible that as we read through that list in Ecclesiastes, through that list of human experiences, many resonated with you. Perhaps you remember those times of laughter, those times of dancing, those times of planting. Maybe you remember times of grief, 
Maybe you remember times when you were wrong. Those were part of your life, but it's also possible that you remembered one or more times where you were the one who inflicted pain. You were the one who brought about sadness. You were the one who did wrong. We need wisdom for our lives that doesn't just speak into the good times. We need wisdom that speaks to every time. We need wisdom that can help us navigate the hard times regardless of whether someone else brought it to our doorstep or we were the ones driving the bus, leading other people there and maybe running some people over along the way. We need wisdom that speaks into every area of life. There's a scene in the book, Out of the Darkness, written by Greg Hurwitz, where the, the main character is going to a neighbor's house and the neighbor's son has dislocated his shoulder. He is in pain. And, and the main character has some battle or field, field experience and can, can help reset those bones. And, and the neighbor is asking him to help reset her child's bone, her child's shoulder. And, and, and he looks at the kid and he asks him, okay, where is the pain right now on a scale of 1 to 10? And after clarifying what a 1 in and a, and a 10 is, the, the kid among tears says it's about a 6 right now. And the man says, well, I'm going to come over and in just a little bit, I'm going to move something. And the pain is going to shoot up to an 11. But it'll be for just a second. And then it'll go straight down to a 2. Now you'd think being told that your pain is almost going to double might cause the child to recoil and fearfulness and say, no, thank you. And he does recoil for just a second. But there's something about the man's honesty that engenders trust. Honesty about the fact that there is going to be greater pain actually engenders trust. And he leans in and allows himself to be made well. What the author of Ecclesiastes does by naming the helpful and the harmful seasons is he engenders trust. Because if you can name the hard seasons of life, if you can acknowledge then that they exist, then there's a chance that you might know how to get through them. That you might know what it takes to navigate beyond them, to bring order where they is, there is chaos. There's a chance because he's naming them, that he's got wisdom for every season and that he's worth listening to. And in the latter portion of Ecclesiastes 3, after he's done listing those human experiences, we find three pieces of wisdom that I want to highlight today that can help us navigate any season. The first is to trust that God's goodness, love, and justice have the final word. One of the phrases that jumps out when you read that latter portion of Ecclesiastes 3, is this idea that says he has made everything beautiful in its time. After he speaks about a time to plant and a time to laugh and a time to dance and a time to embrace, he says he has made everything beautiful in its time, and that makes sense. But then also, after he says that there is a time to uproot, a time to hate, a time to kill, a time for war. He says he has made everything beautiful in its time. How can those things be beautiful? How can those things become beautiful? I wonder if that's not exactly what he's getting at. In his 1963 inaugural address, Alabama, Alabama Governor George Wallace proclaimed loudly 
Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Those are some of the words he is most remembered by. He was an ardent opponent of the civil rights movement, considered one of the greatest threats to the civil rights movement by its leaders. And he stood in the way of the civil rights movement every chance he got early on in his governorship. He hurt people. He hurt people. He caused pain. And he extended injustice for far longer than it should have been. Injustice should have ended before it started. And yet Wallace was part of continuing it. Yet at some point in his life, Wallace has an encounter with God. At some point after proclaiming those words, Wallace has an encounter with God and something starts to change in him. In his later years, he shows up, sometimes unannounced, to historically black churches without press following him. He'd show up, and if given the opportunity, he would speak and he would apologize to the community for the harm he had done. We only know it because people after the fact told the stories, not because he drew attention to himself. In his last term as governor, he made what at the time was a record number of black political appointments in state positions. Now, that doesn't make the harm that he caused okay. It doesn't erase the pain. It's part of his legacy. But it's not the only word about his life. And it wasn't the final word. He has made everything beautiful in its time. We can trust that God's goodness, God's love, God's justice, God's mercy, God's righteousness have the final word. Have the final word in history. Have the final word in our lives. Evil does not, to get, does not get to define the story. It does not get to define history. It does not get to define our lives. Pain doesn't get to have the, the final word or rule the day. There's a comfort in that. For us, for us in the hard seasons that are inflicted upon us, but also for us in the hard seasons that we've inflicted, are inflicting and are trying to reckon what to do with or how to get out of. How do we get out of how we ended up there? He's made everything beautiful in its time. We trust that as we follow God, a different word, a better word will rule the day. A different world, word will encompass our lives. The second piece of wisdom to help us navigate any season is to receive the gift of good work, of delight, and of satisfaction. The, the author of Ecclesiastes asks the question, what do workers gain from their toil? Is it all just clocking in and clocking out? And I don't mean just work, but even of life. Is it all just doing the homework, taking the tests, punching the clock, paying the bills, cleaning the house, driving the kids or the grandkids to practice or rehearsal, waiting for the test results, taking the medicine, and on and on and on until we cross over. Is that all there is? No. Friends, the routine of life may become mundane, may feel mundane, but it doesn't have to be mundane. In fact, we feel the wrongness when it starts to feel mundane because we were made to long for something more. We were made to long for something more in the day-to-day, -day, and God has a gift for us if we'll receive it. 
Here's what the text says. The text says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. It seems almost too good to be true. But go with me for a second. What if? What if the routine was never meant to be mundane? What if God had a gift for you every day? What if you could catch glimpses of God's goodness in the day-to-day? What if you experienced delight in the day-to-day? What if you felt satisfaction in the day-to-day? How different would your life be? How would you be navigating the season that you're in right now? Wouldn't that be a recipe for getting the most out of every season of life we're in? I think so. There's a person in our community who comes across as very stoic and is very straight to the point and straightforward. And there are two times, and I know he feels gladness inside, but there are two times I've seen him giddy, giddy. There was one time where he was sort of observing and sort of managing a a, a small building project. People were building something. uh, There were these contractors and these workers. And he was out there, and 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 I saw him, and he called me out, and he was wearing a hard hat, and he was showing me all the things that were being done and talking about all the things that they were going to do and how he was helping. And you could see just this excitement in him just at the idea of seeing a structure be built up. He was giddy. And then the, the other time was I caught, he, he, he called me over one time, like, tell me this big secret. And he told me, you want to know what I did this weekend? And I was like, what? I actually pulled off a surprise birthday party for my wife, and all the family came into town, and she didn't know it. This is a stoic guy who's just, like, very straightforward, but you could see this delight in him come out. Now, planning birthday parties is a regular occurrence in our lives, at least for some of us. Going about our daily tasks is a regular occurrence. These things can become mundane. But if we receive the gift of God, they don't have to be. There is goodness. There is delight. And that if there is satisfaction that we can find not, in, not just in the grandiose. Because most of our lives are not lived from grandiosity to grandiosity. They're lived in the day-to-day. God has a gift for us in that if we'll receive it. Lastly, the passage invites us to connect with God and pursue that which endures. The passage tells us that God has set eternity in the human heart. And it says that everything God does will endure forever. Following the way of wisdom, friends, is not about reading or listening to some words and trying to live by them, though that is a portion of it. That is a part of it. What it's mostly about is encountering and relating to to the one who spoke the world into existence and gave us the wise words we read through the authors of Scripture. It's about following the one who hung on a cross and rose from the dead and gives us life eternal. It's about partnering with the one who was sent to dwell in us and lead us into truth, the Holy Spirit. What you'll find is that it changes as you go about that. As you go about pursuing and engaging and encountering and following and partnering is that it changes what feels important in life. It changes what feels important. Think of all the things that we dedicate ourselves to. Think of all the things we seek 
from the things we dedicate ourselves to, all the rewards that we receive, all the rewards that we long for, all the rewards that we look for, if we're honest, a good chunk of those things are fleeting. They're passing. They're fading. Now, I know some of them are necessary. I know some of them are important, but that's a whole lot of time and effort spent on things that don't outlive us. And there is something in us that longs to live the kinds of lives that outlive us, that outlast us, that contribute to something that endures, that's put in us by God. We find those things on the way of wisdom. We find them as we connect with him. Last year, uh, I was on LinkedIn, which for those of you that don't know, is a social media site that's mostly dedicated to professional connections, to networking, and people even go about finding jobs through it. And I happened to notice that my profile pic was outdated. And I thought, you know, maybe it's time to change it. So I went about changing it, and when I went about changing it, I realized that the picture I had up there was 12 years old. It had been 12 years since I updated my profile pic, and I thought about who I was back then. Back when I took that picture, or when that picture was taken, I was at an orientation for an entry-level position at a nonprofit right after a significant career change. I'd wrapped up the first year of studies connected to that career change, and I'd been in the workforce for less than five years. So much had changed in my life in the time since. So much had changed. I mean, I'm still me. I'm still that person in the picture. Yet it feels like, the, like that person was living a very different life than this one. And in some ways, that's true. As I think back to who I was in that old LinkedIn profile pic, that Jaime wouldn't be able to do most of the things that I get an opportunity to do in my day-to-day. -day. Or at the very least, he couldn't do them well. And if I now did the things that I did back then, my life would be a disaster. I get fired from my job. It's because I'm in a different season now than I was then. And the different season calls for engaging in life in different ways and dedicating myself to different things. Here's a question. Is the way you're living your life today consistent with the season you're in? How often do you consider that? There are seasons in life, and there are things to be done in those seasons and things not to be done in order to live fruitful and meaningful lives. And friends, a key component to living a wise life is recognizing the season of life we're in. I want to invite you to consider what season you're in. Perhaps for some of us, it's easy to identify because some of the words that we read resonated from the text. Some of us are in seasons of laughter. Some of us are in seasons of mourning. In fact, some in our community are currently mourning. Some of us are in seasons where it's very obvious what we need to do. We need to cram for the exams that are coming up. I'm looking at you, students. Some of us are in seasons of planning vacations. There can be fruitfulness no matter what season we're in. Recognize the season. Those are seasons that are shorter term. And there are seasons in life that are shorter term. And it's good to recognize it, but sometimes it's good to take a global look at life, a bigger picture look at life. And I want to offer another way of thinking of seasons of life that actually helps frame out years of your life and the years of my life. It comes from the work of Paul Stanley, who's an expert in the field of mentoring. And he divides life into three ages, three ages, starting from early young adulthood. 
He calls them the age of learning, the age of contribution, and the age of investment. And he gives age ranges for those ages of life. I don't find them particularly helpful because we're at different modes of growing into those ages. But the age of learning is essentially that initial age where you're, you're, you're sort of past high school. You're trying to figure out who you are, what you want to do, what you're good at. And the goal of that age is to gain a sense of who we are what kind of people we're going to be, how we want to participate with others, with God, and with society. The goal of the age of learning is to gain a sense of who we are, and if we know we're in the age of learning, we will structure our lives in a particular way. After the age of learning comes the age of contribution, and that is as the early career starts veering into mid-career or the early stages of whatever you dedicate yourself to, you gain some experience under your belt. And that's the age where you figure out what your unique contribution is. You start to really home in on that, really sharpen yourself on that, really seek out opportunities that allow you to get the best out of what you have to offer. And then the age of investment is when you turn the corner from thinking about how you might continue to build yourself up as a professional or as a parent or as something else, and you start thinking about how you pass on a legacy. You start looking behind you at the ones that are coming up after you, and you start thinking, how can I help them either in ways that I was helped or in ways that I wish I would have been helped? The age of investment. Perhaps for some of us, this is a helpful way to think of what season we're in. Perhaps it's the shorter-term seasons. Perhaps it's to consider what it means to live good lives, to do good work, to leave good legacies. It doesn't matter what frame of reference it's helpful for you to think of as you consider what season you're in. What I want to invite you to do today and every day is to embrace the wisdom of God, to embrace the wisdom we found in the Scriptures and even in the Scriptures we haven't read, to live this season, the season you're in now, and every season that's to come well, in such a way that seeks out the greatest good, not just for yourself, but for all those around you. Would you pray with me? I want to give us a few moments of silence. And in those moments of silence, I want to invite you to ask God to give you insight as to what season you're in. If you've already locked in on what season you're in, simply ask God to show you how to live into that life. I want to give us five seconds of silence, and then I'm going to pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, today the church remembers the day of Pentecost. Churches around the world are reminded and acknowledging the moment when your spirit descended on your people. Your spirit that led in, that leads into truth. The spirit that empowers. The spirit that enabled a group of your followers to be galvanized into a mission that has transformed the world. That has transformed our lives. Part of that was that they knew the season they were in. Lord, today would you visit us? Would you come and bring insight as to what season we're in? Maybe for some of us, it's the season we're in for the short term. For some of us, that is an uncomfortable season, a season we'd rather not be in, and we're trying to fight our way out of it instead of living into it with your wisdom. Lord, call us to peace. 
call us to peace that we may live into it. Some of us are living through painful seasons, through our own work or through the work of others. Lord, meet us and heal us in that season that we would know that you are not far off. Some of us are in good seasons, seasons of delight, seasons of laughter, seasons of dancing. And we embrace that with the fullness of who you've called us to be. Some of us are in an age of investment. We're in an age of contribution or we're in an age of learning. Lord, may we not rush the age we are in, but may we receive the gift you have for us every day we're in this age. Every day we're in this season. Lord, meet us. Grant us your wisdom today and give us hunger for the wisdom of tomorrow that we might receive it as well. Rejoice in you and delight in your presence. In Jesus' name.